The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So I have a problem that happens every time I officiate a wedding, which I did yesterday. I struggle not to cry. This is a problem for me. And I don't remember it happening before a wedding about 15 years ago. I just asked Carolyn. This was Eric and Lori Kaufman's wedding. And my daughter Carolyn served as the flower girl, which was fine. But I didn't realize they were going to dress her up like a little bride. And that was rough. Because as she came down that aisle right there, and I was standing right down here, something came over me, and I started getting weak in the knees as I projected forward, and I said, oh Lord, may it never be, you know, I don't want to give her up to some dude. And I was, she looked so beautiful and so cute, and I was melting, and then I thought, wait, I've got a wedding to perform, this isn't good. And it happens, it doesn't happen every time, but it happens a lot. I mean, weddings are very special. And a few moments, I think, in the life of a man are as powerful as the moment that he sees his bride for the first time on the day of their wedding. The way we do it here at this church is a dramatic pause and everyone rises and doors at the back of the church open and there she is. And she's labored on her appearance like no other day in her life. And her hair is perfect, the cosmetics are perfect, the jewelry is perfect, sparkling, the dress is perfect. She'll never look better than she does at that moment. And the bridegroom in particular, I think, must drink in that beauty and the, the joy of that moment in a different way than anyone else there. Because he knows that at the end of that ceremony, at the end of that day, she will be his wife. And they're going to be joined together in a sacred covenant of marriage, a mysterious covenant that prefigures, that acts out like a prophecy, a future union between Christ and the bride. Every Christian wedding that I've ever observed has followed this kind of pattern. Ephesians 5.32 says that marriage is a profound mystery, pattern after the eternal and perfect union between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, the consummation of that union awaits all of us. It's in the future. So just like I did for Carolyn that day, projected forward, but this beyond to the end of all history, to the, the point of it all, to the end of the story of redemption comes a wedding. And it's depicted for us powerfully in Revelation 21, verse 1 and 2. The apostle John wrote these words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. The radiance of the church, the new Jerusalem... And John's vision was stunning, almost blinding. Her beauty 
was perfect, ready for her bridegroom. Christ Jesus comes and takes her to himself in a marvelous act of unity between God and redeemed humanity. Every Christian wedding ceremony is a foretaste, a type, a shadow, a prophecy of that future reality. However, there is a significant difference. In our culture, not in every case, but often, on that day, the bridegroom doesn't even look at the bride before that moment and has contributed, I can assure you, nothing to her appearance that day. Nor is he qualified or capable to do so, for the most part. He contributes nothing to her beauty. He just enjoys it and drinks it in. But the radiant beauty of the bride of Christ, the church, the heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem, is completely the work of the bridegroom. Jesus Christ found his bride corrupt, defiled, ugly through rebellion, defiant in her heart, spiritually dead. And he redeemed her by his own blood. And he raised her from the dead spiritually. He washed her with water through the word in order that he might present her to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Throughout every generation of church history, Jesus Christ has been preparing his elect in the same way, little by little preparing his bride for that glorious future wedding day. Every beam of her glory on that day will be his. Every sparkle of her radiance Every holy aspiration now consummated, every passionate desire for him, he will have worked all of that in her by the power of the Holy Spirit. He has been preparing his bride to be glorious for his own enjoyment for 2,000 years. And he's not finished yet. And when she is completed, she will descend from heaven. She will come down from God perfect. She will be a work of heavenly power by Almighty God. All her glory will be His. And when the new heaven and the new earth finally come, they're going to shine with the glory of God. But nothing in that new creation will be more glorious than the church, the bride. It will be the pinnacle of God's achievement. She will be, as Proverbs 12, 4 says, the crown of her husband. Or as Ephesians says, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, what does that have to do with Isaiah 62? Well, I think Isaiah 62 is best interpreted as a first-person description from Jesus of his relentless, passionate zeal to perfect Zion for his own enjoyment. Utterly, relentlessly committed to getting Zion ready for that day. As we already noted, Zion is the new Jerusalem, the people of God, the church, the different ways of looking at it, but it has to do with God's people, Zion. And we see right away in verse 1, Christ's passionate zeal for Zion's glory. Look at verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. Isaiah is not an easy book to interpret. It's hard. I think for me, my perspective, it's vital for us 
to read Isaiah 62, verse 1, with its first-person voice, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet, etc. First-person voice, we have to re- read it properly. Someone is speaking passionately about his commitment to Zion's glory. That's what's going on. No matter how you interpret it, you see that. Now, in the last chapter, if you were to go back one chapter, last week we looked at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. There it said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and and release from darkness for the prisoners and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, in both Isaiah 61.1 and Isaiah 62.1, it's easy to see the first person as Isaiah the prophet himself. He's just talking about his commitment to preach uh, and to teach, etc., Jesus at least solves what Isaiah 61.1 was talking about when he rolled open that scroll as we looked at last week and began his ministry there in Nazareth by going exactly to Isaiah 61.1 and reading those words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor by saying to the assembled people there, today in your hearing this scripture is fulfilled. In other words, this is me speaking to you across the centuries through Isaiah. It's not Isaiah. This is Jesus speaking, Isaiah 61. Well, I think it's good to just go ahead and take that on into 62 uh, one as well. We should take the same approach. I believe this is Jesus speaking again. And he's saying he will never stop preaching the good news. He will never stop speaking. He will not be quiet. He will not be silent until Zion is glorious radiantly glorious. I think if you do that, the whole chapter just comes alive in powerful ways. For Zion's sake, this is Jesus speaking, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn and her salvation like the blazing torch. It is Jesus who will not keep silent. It is Jesus who will not remain quiet. He's going to keep on speaking to Zion. He's going to keep on talking to Jerusalem until she's radiant like a blazing torch and shining with glory. Now, just as Jesus' mission in Isaiah 61 was essentially one of proclamation, the ministry of the word, so also here, Jesus will not keep silent. He's not going to remain quiet. He's going to talk to his bride. He's going to speak to her. And he's not going to stop until she's perfect because she's not perfect yet. She's not finished. She's not complete. There's more work to be done. She has to be yet more glorious than she is now. So what that means for us as we understand it more fully is that there are elect chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world who have not yet been converted. They have not yet been reached with the gospel. They have yet to be brought in. And beyond that... Those elect that have already confessed Christ but who have not yet been glorified still have to become more and more radiant and more and more glorious through sanctification, through growth and holiness. So there's still work to be done on Zion. There's massive work still to be done on Zion until her glory is perfected as described in Revelation 21. But in this chapter, it's not just Jesus who's called on to, be, to not be silent. We're actually invited in in this chapter to get involved, to share his zeal, his relentless zeal for this whole project. 
We're supposed to care about this too. So later in the chapter, he says he's going to post watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. And he's going to command them to give themselves no rest and to give him no rest, those that call on the Lord. So they're to be talking relentlessly until at last Zion is the praise of all the earth. So the Christian reader of Isaiah 62, I think, is drawn quickly into the zeal of Jesus for his bride, the church. And we, as we read this, are challenged to be every bit as passionate and relentless and zealous as he is about the perfection of the church. Now, Christ's goal for Zion is radiant salvation. According to verse 1, Jesus is going to keep on speaking to his holy, his holy word to his bride until she is perfect in his salvation. So Ephesians 5 just comes in. For me as a husband, I read this. All of you husbands can read this. And those of you that just know about Christian marriage, you know these words. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So the goal that Jesus has is plain. Radiant, glorious, blameless, final salvation. Perfection. And his means to the end is the word, the ministry of the word. As the word does its work, she will be made ready. And that final radiance is magnificent. Revelation 21 and 22 are all about the radiance of the new Jerusalem, how beautiful it's going to be, how perfect. Revelation 21, 9 through 11, one of the angels says to the apostle John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And again, later in that same chapter, Revelation 21, 23, the city, New Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So the New Jerusalem is described as having streets of transparent gold. Never been able to figure that out. Transparent gold. But everything in the city seems like the walls of the city have these jewels. These 12 different colored jewels. And, but everything's permeated, irradiated with the glory of God. It's just shining radiantly with the glory of God. And this must be the future glory of the people of God collectively. But each individual member of the body of Christ, we will have our own radiance and our own glow about us, if you can say it that way. Like Jesus said in Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. How beautiful is that going to be? So in Isaiah 62, 1, Jesus is saying his heart is burning with zeal. He will not remain quiet. He'll not stay silent. He's going to keep on talking. He's just zealous about this. He's going to keep on preaching his holy word until Zion is perfect and fully righteous and holy and pure in his sight, free from all darkness and free from all defilement. And friends, that is going on right now. I mean, it's going on right here in this room. By the grace of God, by the presence of the word, by the presence of the spirit. And it's going on all over the world today. 
wherever the word of God is being preached and taught faithfully by gifted servants of God, the word of God flowing and the bride is getting ready. And wherever evangelists and missionaries are sharing the gospel and and speaking into darkness the word of life and people are coming over from darkness into light, from death into life, this is happening. Jesus is doing it all through the Spirit. He's talking to his bride and making her beautiful. And it's amazing for us as we contemplate the darkness out of which we came. And you really have to go on in Christian maturity and study to realize just how dark it was. You didn't realize how dark it was when you were in your lost condition. And even maybe first converted, you didn't understand just how dark it all really was. But the scripture tells us. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14 says, For he, Christ, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then Ephesians 2 says, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Later in Ephesians 5, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. So as we are progressively made more and more radiant in holiness, then the next part of Isaiah 62 comes true. The the nations are drawn to the brightness, the increasing brightness of Zion. As Zion becomes more and more radiant, more and more beautiful, the lost people are attracted to the light. They're, They're drawn in. Look at verses 2 and 3. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you'll be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And you will be, speaking to Zion, a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand. You will be a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So God is going to put the increasing radiant beauty of his church on display to the people still living in darkness. And they're going to be attracted to that beautiful light. They're going to want to be part of it. So you think about the stories of of radical transformation, the conversions that's happened. Obviously, a New Testament example par excellence is Saul of Tarsus. How he was living a life of self-righteous darkness, serving Satan. And trying to destroy the church. He was proud and ambitious and covetous and he was zealous and energetic for his own glory. But suddenly, the heavenly light of Christ's resurrection glory shone around him on that road to Damascus and he fell to the ground. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And immediately, Saul went from destroying a church he hated to building a church he loved. Everything changed. And his life became very mysterious and perplexing to some, very attractive to others. He went right away and began preaching Christ in the synagogue in Damascus. He then was thrown out of the city or had to escape through a basket. He goes to the church in Jerusalem and they're stunned by this transformation in him. And it says in Galatians 1, 23 and 24... The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 
And they praise God because of me. And then this Paul began a life of relentlessly, zealously, passionately building Zion. Building the new Jerusalem by the preaching of the gospel. And people were attracted to the changes they saw in him. And then they began to change too. You think about Thessalonians, the people of Thessalonica. How it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, they turned to the living God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus. And so their, the report of their change went throughout that entire geographical region. Everyone heard about them. Same thing with the church at Rome, probably the most famous local church in the world. And they turned to God from idols and started serving God. And so the nations were attracted to the light They were drawn in, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So as we shine with this heavenly light, this transformed life, a life of holiness, a life of service, a life of conspicuous love for each other, a life of rejecting materialism, of living for the future, of living for the glory of God, a different kind of life. People are attracted to it. They want to know, how do you have this kind of peace? How do you have this kind of joy in your life? I don't have it. And they're drawn in. Nations will see your light, and all kings will see your glory. And you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And you'll be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So here we see Zion's population is ever increasing. As the church becomes more and more glorious, it gets bigger and bigger. It's a cumulative effect. Remember my last uh, winter in Massachusetts, the, the snow, we had six different blizzards before we went, finally escaped. Escaped Massachusetts. <laughs> and all of that snow and uh, we had nowhere to put it. It was cumulative. It never went anywhere. November snow was still there. It just kept accumulating, accumulating, but it wasn't glorious to me. But this, for thousands of years, the elect, the redeemed, have been accumulating. And Zion is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It never takes a single step back. It only gets bigger and more glorious. And we can't see it with our eyes, but it's happening. And it's just going to get larger. Look at verse 4. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. Now, obviously the language here harkens back to the situation that was about to come on, on the Jews. Of being evicted from the promised land and going into exile to Babylon. Which hadn't happened yet. It was still a century away in Isaiah's time. But he can see with the prophetic eye the day when the remnant would return from Babylon. The exiles from Babylon, they would rebuild Jerusalem and repopulate the promised land. And that's what happened. I mean, the overwhelming majority of the Jews that were alive during the time of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion were killed by the sword, famine, and plague. A small remnant went into exile for 70 years they were there. And then they started coming back in the days of the Persian kings. In the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuilt. Now, Jeremiah was the prophet who prophesied the Babylonian exile. And when they were finally deported, when the last of them were gone, Jeremiah, I've always pictured in my mind, just sat there, maybe on the Mount of Olives or some other place, and looked out over Jerusalem, a smoldering rubble. Lamentations 1-1. 
How desolate lies the city once so full of people. But God had predicted that the city would be rebuilt. God had predicted that the land would be repopulated. And some see Isaiah 62 as that kind of thing. No longer will your land be called deserted or your streets empty. But honestly, just like you heard Ben Zweigel read, you know, it's too small a thing for you to do that. It's too small a thing for these words to only talk about that straggling remnant of a few thousand Jews that came back and rebuilt Jerusalem. It was a hard work. I mean, the streets were filled with rubble. It was so depressing that Nehemiah's brother wrote to him talking about the, the, the desolated state of the city. And when Nehemiah went, he couldn't ride around the city on his donkey because of the rubble everywhere. And then once they started building it back up, you know, as I've mentioned before, the temple, temple built under Haggai was so small and pathetic that the old timers who remembered Solomon's temple and all of its glory just wept. No, no, this, this, Isaiah 62 is talking about something far more glorious than that. Bigger than that. I mean, that was a type and a shadow, but it's bigger than that. This is the building of something infinite and glorious, radiant. And so when it says, no longer will they call you deserted, or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. He's talking about, I think, the streaming of the nations to the heavenly Zion through the gospel of Jesus. Which has been talked about again and again in Isaiah's uh, prophecy. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, it says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the house of Zion. And so that's the population. This is something bigger than just the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And the Lord will delight in Zion's glory. The word Hephzibah here uh, means literally, my delight is in her. Hebrew for my delight is in her. That's what God's going to name her. My delight is in her. And the land, Beulah, means married. So the text actually uses a marriage analogy for the land. God will take perfect delight in his people and in the land and marry Zion. So this speaks of his saving intent, not just toward his people, but also toward the earth itself. God has a love for the earth. And there will be a new heavens and there will be a new earth and there will be a new Jerusalem. And all of the groaning and the defilement and the bondage and the curse of Adam's sin will be banished from the earth. And it's going to be better than it was the promised land promised under Moses in Deuteronomy where he said, you know, that land that you're entering, you're about to enter, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not like you had in Egypt where you had to irrigate the land with a foot pump. It won't be like that. But rather, it's a a land that the Lord your God cares for throughout the year. The eyes of the Lord are on it throughout the year. And it drinks in the rain from heaven. I was talking about the land of the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Jebusites. This is talking about a perfect land that's coming even better than that. Far better than the land flowing with milk and honey. This is going to be a perfect world. Now, here we have to turn a corner. Because not only is God delighting in all this, but Zion's sons delight in it too. And we've got to get drawn into this. This has to matter to you or you're just off message of what God's doing in the world. You have to actually care about this too. 
So look at verse 5. It says, as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. Now the sons are doing the marrying here. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Back to God again. So the sons are marrying Zion. Committed covenant of love for that work. And God is in it too, and he delights in it as well. This is the consummation of every love that we've ever had in this world. Every love we have for father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife. Every love there is. And beyond that, really, the love that many have for their, for their homeland. The love you have for your native land. The land of your birth. Many nations feel this very strongly. They write classical music about it. They talk about their, the fatherland. The Germans talk about their fatherland. Russians talk about Mother Russia. Sailors that are gone back in the days of sailing, when they come back to old England, they would just immediately kneel down and and kiss the ground. Kiss the ground just to be back in your homeland. The love that you had for the land itself. And what it's like to be in your own home country and to see that those familiar sights and the comfort that it brings to you. That's going to be consummated in the new heaven, the new earth, and and the heavenly Zion. You'll love the land. Just love it. And you'll be married to it, in a sense. And note how it says, again, about God, he will delight over Zion. He will take delight, like Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. Like God singing love songs to his bride. He's just going to sing over us. What would that sound like, God singing? It's amazing. And so our hearts will swell with joy and lavish peace as our eyes drink in the glory of all three. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem will drink in the beauty and the glory of it. And what will such a world look like? And what will it be like to explore such a world? How much will that bring us delight to find pockets of God's glory? And we'll have all of eternity to explore it and see the radiance of God shining in that world. Now, for us, we don't have to wait for the future to love it. We should love it right now. We should love the church now. You should be committed to the work of the church of Jesus Christ right now. And that's in these two journeys we keep talking about. Internal journey of holiness. Love Zion by growing in holiness and helping brothers and sisters do the same. Disciple each other. Pray for each other. Hold each other accountable. Speak the word of God to each other so you grow in holiness. That is the radiance of Zion as it grows. And then the external journey of evangelism and missions. Evangelism right here in this triangle region. Share the gospel with lost people. Talk to them about their souls. Use the the season, Christmas, as a springboard. But just talk to them. Love the work of Zion. Love the church right now. Now, in verses 6 through 9, we have these relentless watchmen posted on Zion's walls. These are beautiful verses. The Lord appoints here and charges watchmen. Look at verse 6 and 7. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. So here I believe the Lord is calling on the people of Zion... To devote themselves fully as he is to the glory of Zion. The watchmen posted on the walls are a metaphor concerning the relentless protection of a vulnerable city. 
So the city sleeps at night and is vulnerable. So watchmen, hopefully reliable men, are put up on the walls. And they're not allowed to sleep. In days of warfare, it's the death penalty if you're on picket duty or on sentry duty and you fall asleep. You're, the watchmen are on the walls and they're, and they're not going to sleep at night. But here it's even more extreme. These watchmen are posted on Zion's walls and they're told to give themselves neither rest day or night. No rest ever. And they're not allowed to give God any rest either. Give yourselves no rest and give him no rest. Until he finishes Zion. I can't help but think in church history about that Moravian intercession 24 hours a day. They set up in the early part of the 18th century. First quarter of the the 1700s. They began a passionate, committed, 24 hour a day prayer vigil. Based on this and other texts. 24 hours a day. Seven days a week, 365 days a year for over a hundred years. Relentless. It was called Hernhut, the Lord's watch. And they would just watch and pray specifically for missions, the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we can't help but think about the persistent widow that Jesus told that parable that they should always pray and never give up. Never be silent, day or night. You call on the Lord. Give yourself no rest. Give yourselves no rest. And give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of all the earth. Now, I was going to wait to the end of the sermon, but I just want to apply it right now. What's going on with you in your prayer life? How does this convict you? It convicts me. I don't think God's saying that we personally can never get a good night's sleep. That's not it. But the thing is, there should be a relentlessness to our intercession, praying without ceasing. And there should be times of fasting and prayer and focused prayer for the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Zion. That we should give ourselves no rest. We should be passionately interceding for the spread of the gospel. What is your prayer life like? Is there a pattern of sacrificial prayer for missions in your life? Now, the Lord swears to make Zion prosperous. He goes beyond this command to the watchmen on the walls. He actually promises to make Zion prosperous beyond their meager efforts. Look at verse 8 and 9. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Now, the prosperity of Zion is something that only God can work by the power of his right hand and his mighty arm. As a matter of fact, verse 8, he swears an oath by his own right, right hand and his right arm. He's swearing by his own omnipotent power. By my right hand and by my mighty arm, I swear that you will be prosperous for all eternity. In effect, he's saying only my omnipotence can make this happen. By the way, this is another interpretive key that this is not talking about the physical city of Jerusalem. When did this happen? When has this ever been true of the Jews in the promised land? That they would never again lose their harvest to invading enemies. That city's been a war zone for 2,000 years. But in the future, God will establish Zion. And by his omnipotent power, he will make it the praise of all the earth. And the days of danger will be over. There will be absolute peace and prosperity. 
Isaiah 60 verse 11 says of Zion, your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations their kings led in triumphal procession. Or Revelation 21, 23 through 26 says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. You know another reason that you don't need to be guarding the, the walls anymore and the gates can stand open day or night? No enemies left. Satan will have been thrown in the lake of fire. All of his children will be thrown in the lake of fire. All of the rebels will be gone. There will be no threats. There will be a place of peace, permanent peace and prosperity. It says in Isaiah 30, 30, the Lord will cause men to hear the majestic voice of the Lord and they will make, and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire with cloudburst, thunderstorm, and hail. The arm of the Lord coming down on the enemies and removing them out of love for his people and protection of the city of Zion. So finally, verses 10 through 12, Zion's people are redeemed to build up the city. Look at verse 10. We have a highway of Zion's construction here. Spiritual civil engineers build up the highway. Look at verse 10. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. So this is an image here of, of journeying and of traveling and of a, of a highway built in the desert. Every mountain will be made, it will be leveled and every valley raised up. And the word of the Lord traveling, this has got to be missions again. Why is that? Look, we as Christians, we don't need to take physical pilgrimages. That's an old covenant thing. The Jews three times a year would travel from wherever they lived up to Jerusalem, the place that the Lord had chosen. Three times a year they would come up for those festivals. But you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And uh, Jesus convicted her about her sexual sin. Remember that? So she changed the subject, brought up a controversial topic. She was a, she was a smart lady. It's like, you know, you Jews say that, uh, you know, you should worship in Mount Zion. But we say it should be here in Mount Gerizim. Who's right? Smokescreen. <laughs> but Jesus cut through it all to the real purpose anyway. Woman, believe me, the time is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. We're not looking for a physical Zion here. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the Father is seeking those worshipers. This build up, build up the highway, raise a banner for the nations. That's the way by which they make this pilgrimage, this spiritual journeying. And they don't need to move their bodies at all. They might be paralyzed in a hospital, be unable to move a muscle, and they can journey to Christ. Jesus said in John 14, the night before he left his disciples, the night before he was crucified, he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? 
Jesus said, I am the way. There's the highway. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, who is Jesus. All right, well, I'm going to say the same thing about the road. No one can pave a road except the road already paved, and that road is Jesus. He is the way. So wherever these missionaries go, these folks getting, I love that video. That's my favorite IMB video ever. Because it shows so many different features of a missionary's life. But they're getting in a boat. They're going off to an island where some family members, unsaved family members of those that are already Christians, are there. They want to reach them. So they're in their boat. They're traveling across. And they're going to lay a foundation whereby those people on that island can journey to Zion. They don't have to move. They don't have to come off the island. Except to do missions and evangelism. And they're going to lay that road. And that road, is na- his name is Jesus. They're going to preach Jesus. And that, that banner for the nations will be lifted up. And Zion will be consummated. Look at verse 11 and 12. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your Savior comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after a city no longer deserted. So that's what's going to get proclaimed on these roads by the missionaries. Behold, your king is coming. And when we finally see him with our eyes, we're going to see him. That's the second coming of Christ. And at the second coming of Christ, all of these things will be consummated. The daughter of Zion is told, behold, your Savior comes. This is nothing less than the glory and the perfection of the second coming of Christ. And he's going to come with his reward. And his reward is the consummation of our salvation. And we will see him finally face to face and will be transformed. And will receive our resurrection bodies. And Zion will be perfect and complete. Behold, your Savior comes. So applications. First, I pray this morning and I continue to appeal to you. If you know that you are unconverted, you're on the outside looking in. This is the time God set up. This is the purpose of history. Now is the time to come in. Now is the time to come to the feast by faith. To do your journeying now. Repent of your sins. Don't think that you can survive judgment day on your own. You can't. Don't be comfortable with how things are in your present situation. Come to Christ. Repent and believe. To you who are Christians, I just would urge you to meditate on the zeal that Jesus has, the passion he has for the bride here. And let it kindle your heart as well. Jesus is highly passionate for his bride. And then extend it to you. He's passionate about you. He's zealous for you. He's got a zeal and a a, a passion for your glory. He wants you to be holy. And so just think about that. Jesus is going to keep on speaking to you. He's going to keep on ministering the word to you until you're radiant and glorious. Secondly, if I could just speak as I did earlier to husbands. Husbands, have the same glory, a zeal for your wife's final glory that Jesus does. Get involved under him in getting her ready for her real wedding day. And yours too. As it says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. To present her to himself as a radiant church. So that's the best a husband can do for a wife. Love her. Pray for her. Talk scripture to her. Have her talk scripture to you. Grow together in holiness. Grow together in spiritual maturity. Are you spending time together in prayer and in the word? If she has weak areas, strengthen them through the ministry of the word. Sanctify her by the ministry of the word. Let Jesus speak passionately to his bride through you. It's a great way to be a godly husband. And what's going to happen is you're going to grow too because you have weak areas too. Thirdly, set your heart on things above and things to come. 
Don't live for earthly things. My whole point, Isaiah 62, it's not going to be a practical sermon on, you know, how to deal with this, how to do it. It's a big picture vision sermon is what it is. It's like, why are we here? We're here about this. We're here about the bride, the, the wedding that's coming. That's why we're here. So set your heart on things above, not on earthly things, like Colossians 3 tells you. For Christ is your life. And this bride, this work of the bride, this is your life's work, just like it is Jesus's. So set your minds on things above. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also and everyone else, we will all appear with him in glory. Fourthly, obviously, be involved in evangelism and missions. Take the cards that were in your bulletin today. Take, take that one that was in yours and give it to someone you believe to be a non-Christian or somebody you don't know, invite them to church. And use it as a springboard if you have more time to talk about the gospel. Let's, let's like spread the seed widely through this area. I think that's our weakness as evangelists. We don't, we just try one or two here or there. Let's just talk to as many people as we can. Let's have a judgment day fearlessness. We don't care what people about, think about us. We just want to be instrumental in sharing the gospel. Do it at the workplace. Be involved. If I can just say this thing, maybe you don't know this, but incredible work is going on here on Wednesday nights with our international ministry. It's incredible. Recently, we have seen people come from Muslim backgrounds as a direct answer to prayer, wearing, the women wearing the hijab and other outfits. They're just coming right here. They're not Christians. They're coming to learn English. Like, Pastor, I don't know how to get involved in evangelism. Come on Wednesday night. Help teach English. We get to choose the curriculum and what we talk about. (laughs) we get to talk about whatever we want to talk about as they learn English. I have a few topics that I think might be good to talk about. It's just an easy way to get involved in unreached people group missions even. They're coming right here on Wednesdays. And then there are others that are coming from other um, places, East Asia and all that, and they're incredibly intelligent people and they're just trying to learn English. If you want to get involved, is there work for Chase for people to do? What do you think? Absolutely. He's saying yes. We could use more laborers for the harvest field. So get involved in missions. Invite people. And then finally, intercessory prayer. Give yourself no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Zion in glory. Stretch yourself in prayer. Try denying some evening this week something you usually do and instead give it to intercessory prayer for the spread of the gospel. And then go out from there. That's the beginning of giving yourself no rest and giving him no rest till he establishes Zion in glory. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the, the beauty and the complexity and the glory of the word of God. I thank you for the incredible project you're doing around the world in building the church of Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have called us to love Zion and be married to Zion like you are. And that there's an incredible intimacy and oneness between Christ and us as we labor as God's fellow workers on this building, this temple that's rising. Oh God, give us a zeal for it. Free us from from selfishness. Free us from cowardice. Help us to be boldly active in evangelism and strengthen each of us in our prayer lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. 
We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.